What a year it's been. I remember, wow, do you remember Easter 2020? It's a year we'd, it's a year and an Easter maybe we'd rather forget, I'm not sure, but uh, amazing to be back and to be here. You made it. You made it through a year. How many of you, um, just out of curiosity, you don't have to put your hand up, but I just want to tell you I am pro-vaccine, all right? So I'm just saying that to you. I believe that vaccines are uh, based on the design of the immune system that guess who created. So I'm very pro-vaccine. I'm just curious, who of you have actually had it? If you put your hand up. All right, good. Well, you look fine to me. So, <laughs> so I'm looking forward to having mine, all right? So I'm just telling you that. And uh, for those of you who are at home, uh, and you're watching online, uh, I'm not sure how many people we've got here, maybe 50 plus people, uh, but they're all wearing masks and, you know, we've got the plexiglass in front of the singer and uh, so we believe in all of that and uh, we, are, we are watching um, with great hope and anticipation to see what the next few months hold as the vaccines are rolled out into people's bodies and maybe the warmer weather and all of that. So it's like hope is on the horizon at Easter time. How many of you agree with me? Okay, well, how many of you, you're, you're smiling, but the mask is in your way. This is how you do it. You give me a thumbs up like this. That's your sort of your white handkerchief, right? Like the old days. Uh, so I want to talk to you today uh, about the resurrection of Jesus, what it means to us. This is the conclusion of our series. What's so big about Easter anyway? Isn't it just a holiday that these Christians celebrate and they try to make this Jesus God and say that he rose from the dead? I mean, does it really have an impact on life? in a practical way today. I want to explain that to you. And I would invite you also to uh, watch the uh, streamed series. It's free called The Chosen. I have challenged this church to watch that series and to share it with uh, friends, enemies, uh, people who other religious views who have no, no understanding of Christianity uh, or maybe don't even like Christianity. This presentation is, is superb. And uh, the character development is amazing. They are starting Caesar, season two, episode one tonight at 8 p.m. So I will be watching. Uh, I would challenge you to watch it. It will, it will bring the story of the Gospels to you in a way that perhaps you haven't experienced before. So I challenge you to, uh, to watch that. I know people like to absorb different kinds of media uh, around the Easter season. So I want to talk to you about the resurrection and us today. We started this series uh, speaking about Jesus and his baptism, his temptations um, in the wilderness, which is kind of the whole Lent uh, tradition is based on that. We talked about the miracles of Jesus. We talked about Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that on that animal as a, as an indication of something the expectations that they had and what Jesus was really up to uh, we talked about the death of Jesus and today we're going to talk about his resurrection as we finish up I'm going to put something forward to you and that is that the resurrection of Jesus is the most important most significant event in the history of this world. Now, I know that people would, say, would look at that and say, 
Oh my goodness, you know, here we go with the, with the religion. But I, I want to challenge you about this, and I want to get you thinking about this, about how significant and how important the resurrection is and how much it makes a difference in our lives, whether we're people of faith or not people of faith. It has an impact on our lives, but we often define this word resurrection with all kinds of weird ideas in our head, okay? Uh, resurrection is not resuscitation. So there's all kinds of stories, amazing stories, uh, about people who have been resuscitated. They've, you know, they've been clinically dead for a period of time, and they've been resuscitated. Uh, there's a movie that we played uh, here in this in this building as an outreach called uh, Breakthrough, which is about a young a young man who who drowned, and he was he was essentially I mean, medically speaking he was dead for an hour, and his mother came into the hospital room, prayed a simple prayer over him, and immediately his his vital signs started up again, and he walked out of the hospital completely healed on his own volition some ten days later. That's not a resurrection. That may be a resuscitation, but that is not a resurrection, okay? Uh, resurrection is not reincarnation, all right? Reincarnation is an Eastern uh, religious view, uh, and this is the idea that the soul is, is reincarnated in different bodies sort of eternally. Uh, that's not what resurrection is. It's not reincarnation. Remember one time I was doing a funeral for a man. He was like one of the only Christians in his, in his family, and his family was all Hindu. And went and did the funeral, and they had uh, Hindu pundits there, and they got up and they started talking about reincarnation, reincarnation, reincarnation. Then I got up and I talked about resurrection versus reincarnation. <laughs> Two are very, very different, okay? Reincarnation is not resurrection. Revivification, I think I'm pronouncing that right, that's not resurrection either. You see this happen in the Bible. You see people who are dead who, who uh, are raised to life. Um, very famous example in the Gospels, name starts with L. Lazarus, good, I heard you at home. I heard you say it, Lazarus, right? That's not a resurrection. That's a revivification. He was dead, Jesus made him alive. People who are raised from the dead in the Old Testament happens very, very rarely. Those are revivifications. Those are not resurrections because resurrection is a transformation of the body into something different than it wasn't before. Uh, we see this developed in the New Testament. It's, it's immortal. It's imperishable. It's not subject to, to death and decay. It's completely transformed. It's resurrected. It, that's totally different than you know, reincarnation, resuscitation, revivification. Totally different than that. When we see Jesus resurrected, yes, he's in a physical body, but his physical body is somehow different. He, he's able to walk, uh, he appears in a room with not opening the door. Uh, he's still got the scars in his hands and the wound in his side, uh, but he's different somehow. There's a transformation that happens in resurrection. It is a change of state. And I would say to you that the only person who has experienced this in the history of the world is Jesus. Some say that the people who were raised from the dead when Jesus was crucified, which appears only in the Gospel of Matthew, were people who were actually resurrected. 
I, I don't know if that's true because uh, there's no information about those people afterward. I think it would be reasonable to say that those people died afterward. Lazarus died afterward. So those are revivifications, and in my view, the Matthew 26 is as well. But resurrection is something quite different. It is a total transformation of the state of the body. And Jesus is the one person in history who has experienced this. And you say, well, even if he did, so what? What's it mean to me? And do you really think that, that this man actually rose from the dead in some type of different immortal glorified body and actually ascended into heaven? Like, isn't that a little bit, aren't you believing in something akin to Santa Claus? Uh, I want to try and help you understand, first of all, why it's reasonable to believe, even from an intellectual standpoint, in the resurrection of Jesus, but even more importantly, what it means for you. I get very concerned about young people today, especially with a pandemic, and uh, they're, they're deconstructing their faith in many cases. They're walking away from their faith as they grow in the, the education system is not exactly teaching the resurrection of Jesus as a significant event in history, is it? <laughs> if you go to school, you may learn about the resurrection, but it'd be, you know, a myth, a fairy tale, it's springtime, rebirth, eggs, all of that stuff. It's in different religions, blah, blah, blah. It's a nice myth, a great myth, hopeful myth, but it's not real is what you'll learn. I, I want to challenge you, especially young people, and you're struggling with that, and people, uh, you're, anybody, you're thinking about things differently, especially because of a pandemic, and you're reevaluating your faith, you're, you're rethinking the things that you believe. I've had a lot of people who've asked me, why doesn't God just get rid of it? Why doesn't he just take it away, this pandemic? Um, 2,000 years, there's been a lot of pandemics the church is still around. <laughs> so it's not based on whether or not there's a pandemic. But I just want to explore with you for a few minutes this, this reality of the resurrection and apply it to our lives. When you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, there's no, nobody had a cell phone back then shooting a video that would be viral. Uh, nobody had cameras. There's no pictures. There's no you can't prove it in some laboratory in a, in a scientific way in that sense. You can't observe it like that. It's not repeated. Um, so, you know, people say, well, ex extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. What kind of a claim is that? That this man who, who lived 2,000 years ago actually rose from the actual dead. You need extraordinary evidence for that. I think the people in the New Testament would agree. You remember Thomas? What did Thomas say? He said, I need extraordinary evidence. I don't believe it. Unless I see the hands and put my finger in the hand where, his, where the nails were. Maybe it was the wrist. Unless I put my hand in there. Unless I put my hand where, where the spear went in his side, I will not believe. Oh, he's demanding extraordinary evidence in my view. Uh, what about Saul of Tarsus, who hated Christianity, hated the new movement, hated Jesus? What convinced him? What flipped the switch? What extraordinary evidence changed him 180 degrees where he ends up writing much of the New Testament, becomes the greatest spokesperson for Jesus ever, arguably, 
must have been some pretty extraordinary evidence to turn this violent persecutor of the church into this passionate preacher and church planter. What was it that convinced the disciples who initially were quite skeptical about the resurrection? What was the extraordinary evidence? I think it does require extraordinary evidence, but it's cumulative in nature. There's a case that can be made, and I want to make that case just a little bit for you this morning. Uh, the initial disbelief of the disciples, if you read the Gospels, you don't see this. Wow, they really wish he was raised from the dead. No, it, it takes them by surprise, and it's odd, because if we're to believe the Gospel record, he predicted it several times. And I'll get into that in just a moment, but... They had an initial disbelief, not belief. When, when some of the women came to the disciples and told them what they had seen, the disciples said, or some of them said, this is nonsense. What you're saying is nonsense. This group of women and women back in, the, in that time, in that culture, your testimony wasn't believable if you were a woman, especially in a court of law. People thought, Oh, well, you know, very low opinion of women in that culture. But you had an initial disbelief of the disciples. Curious. What about this tomb that was empty? And not empty in friendly conditions, but empty in very hostile conditions. So you read the Gospels and you see that the biggest um, excuse that was made for the empty tomb was that the guard that was placed there, and the guard that was placed there was placed there because the enemies of Jesus, the, the, uh, the chief priests, they, they, had, they, they said this deceiver said that he would rise in three days. So they went to Pilate and they said, put a guard at that tomb because the disciples might come and steal that body and then there'll be even more deception. So they put a guard at the tomb. We're not sure if it was a Roman guard or if it was a guard from the, uh, uh, that the priesthood controlled there from the temple. We're not sure, but there was a guard there. And uh, yet you have this empty tomb. Uh, if you had an empty tomb, well, go find the body. <laughs> go find the body, parade the body all over the streets of Jerusalem and end this thing. Or, or find somebody who looks like him and parade it around and end it. It doesn't end. It explodes explodes with the empty tomb. And then when you have the book of Acts and you have the transformation of Paul and you have the preaching of this, it spreads like wildfire from Jerusalem, gets all the way to Rome uh, and beyond and beyond and beyond. And to us today, it didn't stop at the empty tomb. It began at the empty tomb. Well, why not just find the corpse? What, what, why is that? This is in a hostile setting. You have a segment of Judaism who detests this new movement. You have the Roman uh, uh, whole political system that detests it. This is done in a hostile setting. And yet no one can parade around the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth and end this movement before it gets even worse. It's a hostile circumstance not a friendly circumstance. What about all these post-resurrection appearances, including the one that happened to Saul of Tarsus? He was extremely convinced. This was a man who supervised the brutal execution of Stephen by stoning and yet was 
miraculously transformed, 180 degrees. His testimony, I had an experience with the risen Jesus face to face. He called me. And what, what is it that he experienced that convinced him so much? What about the whole book of Acts, which is loaded with experience after experience, detail after detail? Uh, you've, got, you've got 40 miracles that you have to discount in the book of, uh, in the Gospels. You've got another 50 that you have to discount in the book of Acts. All of them have their source in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And the book of Acts has their source, the miracles that take place in the book of Acts have their source in the risen person of Jesus of Nazareth. What are you going to do with all this? This is all cumulative evidence. And you, you watch the history of the church as it moves into our time. And, and for sure, there, the, the Christendom, I will say, has a lot of blood on its hands. And a, a case can be made, and skeptics make this case all the time, and they say, look at all the things that have been done in the world because of Christianity and all this war and all this persecution and all of these things of people who use Christianity. Look, Christianity is a source of problems in the world, they will say. My friends, that is not an accurate and respectful view of history. Yes, there have been people who have used Christianity in, in heinous ways, to commit heinous crimes and genocide even. Yes, that has happened. But when authentic Christianity and the real thing is at work, it transforms cities, cultures, civilizations. The, the foundation of, of, the, of university and higher learning is because of Christianity. Uh, hospitals, education, fighting the poor, all these kinds of things, standing up for the marginalized. Um, uh, an example, the abolition of the transcontinental slave trade. That's because of authentic Christianity that has transformed culture. The foundation of law in Western civilization, at least, is because of Judeo-Christian ethics. So the transformation of culture, because of and in the, it has its roots in the belief in the empty tomb of Jesus of Nazareth. You have a lot of cumulative evidence that you have to find a way to get rid of if you're going to say that this person didn't rise from the dead. To say nothing of modern history, go back into the first century, first, second century of the explosion of Christianity, and you have enough there. I cannot prove it. I cannot go into the past. I don't have a time machine. I don't have a picture. I don't have a selfie. I don't have a viral video. But you can accumulate a case, a strong case, for the empty tomb of Jesus. Two things for thought from the scripture here. Jesus predicted it. You say, I can't be expected to believe that. That was inserted into the text many years later, blah, 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 blah. I've spent enough time over the last year 
uh, trying to explain to you. You'll see video after video after video in defense of the accuracy and uh, the transmission of the New Testament and the gospel record. We don't have a case here where all these things were inserted later into the text by some zealous scribes or people who wanted to make Jesus God in the third and the fourth century and so on. We don't, you can't build that case. The information's the same as it was right from the beginning, right from the first century, right from when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and all the other people wrote those. It's the same information. The information has not changed. That is the weakest case of all that people try to build. But I'll, I'll just say that all of the predictions that Jesus made about him rising from the dead, all of them are false, I'll just say, except one that I'm about to prove to you. Uh, you'll find it in Matthew chapter 26, verses 60 and 61. This is in one of the many trials of Jesus. And when Jesus is uh, before this particular group, they are trying to trump up charges so that they can get him ultimately sent off to Pontius Pilate to uh, perform a public execution in front of everybody and squash it and end it and stop this thing from spreading any further. And you see that two people come forward and they say, uh, Matthew 26, verses 60, 61, 62, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. He's in front of the high priest there and they're trying to find blasphemy against him because if someone claims to be the Messiah and then says that they're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days like some sort of a magic trick, they are a false Messiah. They're a deceiver. They're a liar. They're a devil because the Messiah brings people to the temple. He doesn't play games and destroy the temple and rebuild it. That's nonsense. He's a blasphemer. We heard him say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That really happened in Jesus' real trial. They bring it up as charges against him to try and find him guilty of blasphemy. Thing is, when did he say that? Well, we know when he said it. Uh, if we turn to John's gospel and John chapter 2, and again, this is all you need. You don't need all the other predictions because this one was brought up in a court of law, a religious court to find the man guilty of blasphemy and get him executed. This is what Jesus said, John chapter 2, verse, uh, uh, verse 19, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He did say it. But what is he referring to? Is he referring to the actual temple in Jerusalem? No. He's referring to his physical body. He's making an illustration there that he is going to die and that he himself will raise himself from the dead. That's quite a claim. I remember arguing with a Jehovah's Witness about this and I brought this to the Jehovah's Witness and I said, you have a bodily resurrection to contend with because Jehovah's Witnesses don't really believe in the actual, physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And the Jehovah's Witness said to me, you believe that Jesus raised himself? I said, absolutely I do, because he's God. And they don't believe that either. But here he's making the claim that not only will he die, but he will raise himself in three days. And they bring it up in a trial. That's because he really did make the prediction, you see. 
He appealed to the supernatural. He believed in the supernatural, and he made this statement. Not only did he make it here, he makes it all over the place, but I'll give the skeptic all the other, all the other places and say, okay, all those, are, all those are whatever you want to make them, but you cannot deny this. This was brought up in the trial. That's because Jesus himself said it. And that's a pretty strong case that he said it. But I want to also take you to another place, and that's inside the tomb. Uh, think of it as something of a crime scene. And when you have a crime scene, what do you do? You, you run in there and you take pictures and you don't touch anything and you try and figure out you, what happened. You know, you watch mystery movies and TV shows and you got a scene there and you try and figure out what happened. There are a couple of obscure passages that uh, are not often talked about at Easter, but you get to see inside the scene of the tomb of Jesus. What was it that these people saw that flipped the switch and convinced them? Again, these are people who had a skeptical view. These men, some of them, said that what these women are saying is nonsense. They're women after all. Sorry, but that was the view back then. What they're so, I mean, this, this is, even though Jesus had said that this would happen, they didn't understand it. They did not, they could not comprehend this idea that Jesus would actually live bodily again. When he was crucified and executed on that cross, for them, it was over. It wasn't hope that day. It was loss, loss, loss. Just like we experience loss when someone passes away, when a loved one passes away, and they felt that loss. What was it that flipped the switch? You look at Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, you start to see things, verses 9 to 12, and you know, you've know you got the report of the women, and you read the gospels, and there are little discrepancies in there, which is fairly normal. When you've got people who witness things, you're going to hear little discrepancies. Uh, but from verses 9 to 12, they, they come back from the tomb, the women, and they tell all these things to the 11 and the others, and it was uh, the mother of James. Um, uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of, uh, of James and the others and they report this to the apostles and they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense to them. Peter, however, oh Peter, verse 12, he got up and he ran to the tomb, Luke tells us, and he bends over and he, it says he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. What did he see? What is he wondering about? What does that mean, the strips of linen lying by themselves? They would wrap, uh, they would wrap the, the, the bodies of, of people who had passed away. In Jesus' case, he was treated very well because he was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who had provided his own tomb. That was, that was nice. It was uh, maybe for the well-to-do. And we see the wrapping and the burial customs followed according to the way that they did it. There's nothing startling there. But what does he see? Strips of linen lying by themselves. It's an odd passage. And then you turn to John for a little bit more, uh, a little bit more clarity on it. And then it really starts to get interesting. And there we're told that Peter was also with uh, John the writer of John's gospel, who refers to himself as the other disciple. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Some say it's because John was younger than Peter. He had younger legs, I suppose. And so he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen 
Now, whatever you think of the, the famous, now famous Shroud of Turin, it is a rather interesting conundrum how that image that when you reverse it looks exactly like a person. And many people believe that it's, it's the actual image of the actual resurrection that somehow got that image into that cloth. Whatever you think about it, it is an interesting conundrum. Uh, but you have that linen cloth there. And you see that he, he bent over, looks in at the strips of linen lying in there, but he didn't go in. And then Simon Peter, who was behind him, he arrived and went into the tomb. And look at this. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around his, his head. And the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. It's an interesting detail. Finally, the other, de- uh, the other disciple who, who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, what did he see that made him believe? What would you look at? What, I mean, all there is in there is the cloths, like they wrapped this body and that's all you saw. Why would he look in there and believe? Why wouldn't he think that, you know, the, the body was moved? That's what some of the women thought. They said, well, they've taken his body, and we don't know where they put it. But why would he believe in a resurrection? What would flip the switch of faith by looking at that crime scene? And uh, some argue, and I think it's a very strong argument, that what they saw there was the cloth untouched, as if the body had simply vanished and disappeared from it, and it retained its shape, as it were, and it was untouched. It wasn't like someone unwrapped it or opened it, or it was just as if the body vanished. That would be a very convincing thing. If I were, if I were looking at that, and I saw the, I saw the, and it was all in its shape, it was untampered with, I would say, wow, how'd that happen? Is this some sort of magic trick? Is this some sort of illusion? It may well trip, flip the switch of faith to see something as remarkable as that. In any case, what you have is an accumulation of information that pushes you to a place where you can make a decision to believe. It is a cumulative case. It's not one little thing that sticks out. It's a whole accumulation. But ultimately, what does it mean for you and for me? Because I have a feeling that a lot of you who are in this room, people watching, you're saying, Pastor, you know, nice job, interesting history lesson and all that. But you don't have to convince me that Jesus rose from the dead. You don't have to. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, but do you remember what it means for you? Do you, do you understand the meaning of, of this day, of what this means for you? So when we talked about the death of Jesus, that Jesus was 100% dead, he didn't swoon, he didn't fall asleep, he, he, he was dead, he died on that cross. What does that mean for us? Well, we said on Good Friday, that means death to self. Jesus said, take up your cross daily. If you want to be a follower of me, you've got to take up your cross. That means you die. When people took up crosses, they died. He says you take up your cross daily. Wow, that's a high, high call to discipleship. It means that you're dead to sin. Paul says in Romans chapter 4 that your relationship with sin, it's like it's severed because you identify with the death of Christ. When he died, you died. 
When you're baptized in water, it symbolizes that that old you has died and your relationship to sin is cut by the work of Jesus on the cross. You die to sin. You die to the the basic uh, uh, ethics and principles and the way that the world uh, operates. Paul says, the world was crucified to me and I to the world. He identifies with Jesus' crucifixion. I am crucified with Christ. So there's a death that takes place in you when you believe in Jesus. The old you dies. The relationship with sin dies. You take up your cross. You become a disciple where Jesus is on the throne of your life and you're not anymore. But what does the resurrection then mean for us? When he arose then... We arose with him. Usually, you know, on Easter Sunday in a church, you get an amen. I think the people on the camera were louder. I could hear them from their homes say amen louder than you. Usually, in church, when, when Jesus arose, you arose too. Do you have any idea what that means for you in your personal life today? Well, it means a few things as we finish up today. Number one, you can have and can experience new life today. Not just when you die, but new life today. Paul says this, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's that identification with Jesus in his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. That happens now. You live a new life now. He doesn't say you have to wait to die to experience new life. You experience new life in Christ because you identify with his resurrection. The resurrection doesn't happen. You have no new life. But you can have new life in Christ because you identify with the fact that when he rose, so did you. When we baptize people in water, in the water, up out of the water. It's a beautiful picture. Death and new life. That's why millions and millions of people testify over 2,000 years that when they start following Jesus, their life is changed. Something changed. I used to live this way, and now I live a different way. And it's a permanent change, a growing change that has happened in my life. How did that happen? It happened because of the risen Christ, new life today. What does it also mean? It means a present hope of something to come. A present hope of heaven, of something after this life. So Ephesians chapter 2, and we often refer to this passage when talking about the grace of God and how we're saved by grace through faith, and that's very true. But we often skip over the previous verse, and God raised us up with Christ. He's raised us up with him. We identify with his resurrection. He raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. What? 
I thought you're seated in a movie theater seat where they're about to play the unholy. Well, that may be where you're temporarily seated, but where you're actually seated is in heavenly places with Christ. What does that mean? That means this life that you're living, it's temporary. This is your, you, you are, everything that you have now is on loan to you. You're to be a steward of everything that you have, your, your health, your children, your every, it's, you, it's on loan to you. This is a practice run for eternity because God has raised us up in Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places. Your ultimate destination, your ultimate home is not this world, at least the way that the world is now. It's way, way, way beyond that. The present hope that we have in heaven to come is opened by the resurrection of Jesus. That's why you can face life. That's why you can face death. That's why you can face everything in between because your life ultimately is with Christ in heaven. Wow, that'll give you hope on a rainy day. That'll, that'll help you to face that funeral. That'll help you to deal with that health crisis and that, that disease is threatening to take your life. When you realize, no, 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 I'm in Christ and where Christ is, I will be one day. Wow, that, that'll give you some hope for tomorrow, today. And finally, there will be a future resurrection, change of state, change of the body for you as an individual person. So what Jesus experienced, you will experience. Romans chapter 6, verse 5, uh, Paul uh, writes it this way. As he finishes up his little, his little thoughts here. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. There's going to be a transformation of your physical body and it will be changed into an immortal, eternal, imperishable a body that is not susceptible to death or decay. There will be a change of every... In fact, the whole world is going to be completely transformed and changed and ultimately redeemed because, why? Of the empty tomb of Jesus. You see, that one man, that one event has a tidal wave effect that reaches right to you and right to me. Those of you who, you know, your body's getting a little sore, <laughs> your hair's getting a little more gray, it's, it's you know, you, that, that, that body that you have, one day you're going to get a new one, and it's going to be a resurrected, changed, transformed body. You say, I can't be expected to believe that. Well, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you have a way to believe it, you see. It all hinges on that empty tomb. The ramifications and the impact is powerful. But you have to say to yourself, am I going to believe this thing or am I not going to believe it? In my view, you have a case that is strong 
that the, the, the switch of faith can be flipped. And maybe today it can flip uh, for you. So I'm going to call the, the band back and get them ready to, uh, to play. Maybe you guys can do one song and then just keep playing as we open up the, the front there after the service for people to come and get their gift bags for kids and their cards and give it the offering and all that. But I want to give you a chance to respond today on Easter Sunday and those of you who are watching online for you as well. You have to do something with the resurrection of Jesus. When you hear about it, you have to do something with it. Either you fluff it off and you say, well, it's good for you, you believe it, but I can't be expected to believe it. Okay, if you make that decision, you make that decision. But you've made a decision when you make that decision. Or the switch of faith goes on. And you say like Paul. And you say like the disciples. And you say like those those women from the first century who were the first people to see it and the hundreds into thousands into millions of people who have been transformed allegedly by the resurrected Christ and you say God I don't know if I understand it all but I, I want you in my life I want that death and resurrection of Jesus in my life I want to know you. I want to pursue you. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. So I'm going to pray on your behalf this morning and those who are watching online. And you don't have to pray this prayer out loud if you don't want to. It's, it's a matter of authenticity between you and God. But I'm going to pray it on your behalf, okay? Because God responds to the steps that you take to Him. He'll respond by taking steps toward you, wherever you're at today. So God, I just, I just say on behalf of, of my church family who's here, people who are online, people who are watching, who I don't know, people who will watch. I say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I just recognize and understand that I can't keep living the same way that I've been living. And Jesus, if you're real, if you're alive today, if you really have risen from the dead, then that transformation that millions of people testify about, I want it in me. Reveal yourself to me and save me and change me even at this very moment and starting now I want new life Amen